This is 105.9 The Region, and you're listening to Discovery, the radio show for podcasters. Your content, unfiltered. This is Discovery. I took the somebody's... Welcome to Cartoons, a celebration of the music and artists we love to listen to in the car. Welcome to another episode of Cartoons, the show that brings you closer to Alberta's finest musicians. I'm Paul Brandt, proudly from Alberta, and proud to be speaking today with one of my dear friends and a legendary artist from this province in her own right, Terry Clark. Together we'll be diving into Terry's inspiring story, another Canadian who followed her dream to Nashville and gave us music that has become a part of the fabric of our lives. Wow. That's quite an intro. You like that? I, I, I'm feeling good about myself right now, Paul. You hold me like a prayer. You touch me everywhere. A lifetime just ain't enough to love it true. Now that I found you. Now that I found you. Thank you for having me on the show. This is going to be a lot of fun. Well, I had so much fun, you know, just hanging out on tour with you on the homecoming tour and getting to know you better. And maybe we'll get into a little story about how I dropped my iPhone on your head later. (laughs) I want people to know about how your journey began in Medicine Hat, Alberta. You were born into a family steeped in country music. How did this shape your early aspirations and influence your unique sound? Well, it started in Montreal where I was born and my maternal grandparents, Ray and Betty Goche, were professional musicians in the club circuit around Montreal. So they were known very much locally. They had their band. My grandmother played bass and sang and played guitar and I've seen pictures of her playing a snare drum with brushes at times. My grandfather was the fiddle player. He also played guitar and he was also their booking agent. So. I have some really cool business cards, you know, that he had made up at the time. And that's what they did. And there was always country music around their house. There were guitars in every corner. And then when I came along, you know, I I remember actually some Christmases back in Montreal, you know, if we could get through the snowdrifts, we would have these jam sessions around their living room. And I was like, you know, eight or nine years old at the time. And I don't even think I had picked up a guitar at that point. So that was sort of the on-ramp to where all this really began. No, it sounds like a pretty incredible history and, and legacy of music in your family that just naturally kind of led to where you are today and the incredible music that we all get to enjoy. Why don't we jump into one of those songs right now? Sure. Every time I do, every time you lie, every time I cry. As we continue to celebrate Terry Clark in this episode, in the early 1990s, you made a bold decision. I heard a lot about this when we were on tour together recently about your move to Nashville and how you decided to chase your dreams in country music. It's such a huge step. So what were your thoughts during that transition? What challenges did you face as a new artist in Nashville? Or specifically, and this is interesting to me because we have this in, in common as a Canadian artist in Nashville. Well, I'm going to have to rewind just a little bit. When my mom and dad got divorced, my mother moved to Calgary with my sister and I, Tina. And she was a single mom for a while, and there she met my stepdad, Peter Clark. I was not born with the last name Clark. I was born with the last name Sawson. And they formed a family and had my brother, and we all moved to Medicine Hat, Alberta. 
I had actually picked up the guitar when I was nine, and my mom taught me three chords. And so between nine and 13 and living in Medicine Hat, the prairies are steeped in country music. I mean, every radio station you turn on in the prairies is country music. I really immersed myself. I got obsessed with the Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell Sisters show. Okay, yeah. And I sat in my bedroom for hours and hours practicing. And then I discovered Reba McIntyre and Ricky Skaggs and the Judds and all of that early 80s country coming out of Nashville. So I became very obsessed with the whole thing. By the time I was 16, I was entering local and provincial and some national talent contests to try and get my foot in the door in Canada. I had known from the time I was about 15 on that I was going to make a move to Nashville and my mom was going to take me and we were going to do whatever we could to get my foot in the door. We crossed the border and the border guard looked in the back seat and it was my mom and our family friend Pat who had known me since I was born. My mom and her were old, old friends. And he looked in the back seat and saw this 18-year-old kid in a guitar case. And he said, where are you guys going? And Pat looked at him and said, the Grand Ole Opry. Wow. Wow. (laughs) And yeah, we just told him we were going on a weekend vacation. And there was a lot of irony in that statement. So, yeah, I mean, I didn't have a green card, Paul. I didn't have any legal way of staying, but I did anyway. And and I got a job playing at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge for tips on Lower Broadway. And I got paid $15 a day plus tips. You know, it's been an honor and a pleasure for me over this last period to be able to be on the road with you and hear some of these stories. But I know everybody listening and listening to this next song, we're really glad you took that weekend trip that lasted a lot longer because it's changed a lot of lives, including yours. But I know the music fans out there appreciate it too. So thank you for sharing that. Well, thank you. Nineteen ninety-five marked a significant year for Terry Clark when she released her self-titled album. The first single, "Better Things to Do," became a hit, climbing the top five on both Canadian and American country charts. We're gonna play a little bit of it for everybody right now. But now I got better things to do. Can you describe your feelings and maybe some memorable moments during the time when that all hit, even when you heard it on the radio the first time? I think the harder the struggle and the tougher the climb to that moment when you feel like something's finally breaking through is just monumental. And I had been in Nashville for eight years before I got my record deal and waited tables and tended bar and played for tips and all of the stuff. So when... I finally got a record deal in 1994. We started making this album right away, and I was co-writing a whole lot. And I was still writing a lot of songs for the first and second album when Better Things To Do hit. In fact, when we wrote Better Things To Do, me and my two co-writers knew that that was probably going to be the first single. We just had a, a hunch about it. And I was in Abiquiu, New Mexico, shooting the video for the song, and a DJ we had lunch with because you know that's what you do you you have to schmooze the radio guys said he was going to play the song at a certain time that night so he played it and I, I listened to it on a little clock radio in my hotel room and I heard myself on the radio for the first time in New Mexico that night he was the first DJ that ever played that song and I will just never forget it it was a 
It was a crazy time. Everything is a bit of a blur because when it happened, it seemed like it was just like pushing a boulder uphill. And then when I got that boulder up that hill, the other side was just pandemonium. It started to roll really fast. Terry, your third album, How I Feel, in 1998, not only your third platinum-selling album, but it also included the hit single, You're Easy on the Eyes, which topped the U.S. country charts. And I'm just going to say, just really quickly here, when we were on tour together, we played this song and sang it together every single night. So I'm just going to play a little clip of that really quick. You became the first Canadian female country artist to achieve the feat of charting number one in the States as well as in Canada. This was important for Canadian country music as a whole. Maybe reflect a little bit on that time of your life. Well, what's interesting about that time of my life, and you were a part of this, there was a bit of a Canadian takeover in Nashville. And one, like, I don't think we've really seen since. You, Shania Twain, and I were all part of that. And it was just very, very hard for a Canadian artist to break through in the States. And I had certain circumstances happen where I could have wound up with a Canadian record deal. And for whatever reason, fate would have it, I didn't. So coming to Nashville and just breaking into it through an American record label allowed me to go more international rather than just be more of a local Canadian artist. So I was grateful for that. And I think that it all sort of happened around the same time. Shania's Whose Bed Have Your Boots Been Under became a big hit within six months of Better Things to Do coming out. And then in 1996, your song, My Heart Has a History, came out. And it was like, what is going on here? What's with all these Canadians? (laughs) Turns out it was a window that this happened and, and it wasn't something that just kept going on and on. We were part of something really special at the time. And I feel the same way. It was something incredibly special. And I feel very privileged and thankful that we've had the opportunity to do all of that. You're easy on the eyes. Incredible. Number one. Three weeks in a row. <laughs> it's not a contest. It's not a contest, Terry. You know, it's funny. We would we would dive into this for everyone listening right now when we were on the homecoming tour. And we had this bit that went along throughout the entire show where we would just kind of like nudge each other a little bit. It's not a contest. Oh, yes, it is. Well, what about this? And we had so much fun. I mean, I think people were rolling on the floor. I know we yeah. were. Oh, so much fun. Just, just yeah. having an incredible time together. The podcast series Cartoons celebrating the great Albertan musicians you listen to in your car is focusing on my friend and fellow Albertan, Terry Clark. Terry, your fourth album, Fearless, was released in 2000, and it seemed to showcase a more personal side, I think anyways, a personal side of your music, including the hit A Little Gasoline. So had your approach to songwriting evolved? At that time... Between the third album and Fearless, I felt like I was starting to get a little bit pigeonholed into this tongue-in-cheek fun, which is nothing wrong with it, but it, it felt like the path of least resistance with radio was these bouncy tunes, you know, where I'm jumping around with a cowbell. But I have a much more introspective side as a songwriter. I wrote If I Were You completely by myself when I was 22 years old, and I don't know a lot of people know that. If I were you Yeah, I didn't know that. That's amazing, yeah. I I tried to always write something alone on every album. 
if it passed muster with the A&R gods at the label, you know. But when I got to the fourth album, I started writing with people I had never written with. I did not write with the same people that I wrote the first three albums with. I would say it was almost had a bit of an Americana leaning. And it's my favorite album to date that I've ever made, and a lot of my fans as well. I wrote No Fear with Mary Chapin Carpenter, which went number one in Canada. It didn't do as well in the States. Little Gasoline, I did not write. That was written by Roger Miller's son, Dean Miller and Tammy Rogers, which is an interesting tidbit a lot of people may not know. But A Little Gasoline, to me, is the perfect cartoon song. It's driving song, and so many country songs are about driving. And I can't tell you how many videos I shot where I wanted to keep the car in the video at the end of the shoot. Oh, I'm sure. And I, I would say whether it was a song that you wrote as a part of the Fearless album or song selection and moving in that direction, it required a bit of risk. And when it comes to creativity, when you take those risks, there's always a big payoff for everybody. So I'm glad that you did that. Here's a little clip of A Little Gasoline. What my heart needs now is rest, so I'm packing up and I'm headed west. My mind's made up, I'll put it to the test. Pushing myself and this old machine, burning fumes and what's left of my dreams. Let them go, cause I don't need no strings. Just give me a road and a Beyond your musical achievements, Terry, you've been, I would say, one of the leaders of Canadian artists in the American country music industry. What do you say when aspiring artists look to you to follow in your footsteps? Was there anything that you wish you hadn't done, regrets you look back on career-wise or otherwise, or, or something that you wish you would have done more of? Well, I think, Paul, you and I talked about these types of things a lot when we were on the road together. Our and therapy sessions. Yes, we had some of those. <laughs> And I do believe that you wind up where you're supposed to be and God gives you what you can handle. And I don't know that I have any regrets because I feel like my path was in a way predestined. But, you know, what I would tell other people is to just surround yourself with people that'll tell you the truth. A lot of people can let their cousins and aunts and uncles and local people get in their head and tell them they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. But until you really hone that craft and maybe enter some talent contests, I mean... God knows we've got a million of them and they're national television shows now. So your A&R staff is the whole world. So you know pretty quick. But to me, it's having that team of people that aren't on the professional side of this, that believe in you as much as you believe in yourself, that will help you get better by giving you that constructive criticism. In recent years, Terry, you just continue to make music that resonates with fans around the world. And your album, Raising the Bar, released in 2018, I would say is a testament to your enduring appeal. We're going to listen to it. Just a really quick clip right now. So looking ahead, I mean, this is always the big question for creatives, and I know you never stop creating, but what are your aspirations for the next phase of your career? What's next for you? And are there new musical territories that you want to explore? What's on the radar? Well, I've decided I'm finished with DIY home renovations and trying to redesign (laughs) houses now. Okay. Honestly, God, a lot of my creative energy did go to things like that because I love interior design and reworking rooms and tearing down walls and putting them up. 
But I do have a project coming out. It's going to be under the Universal label here this next year. Yeah, I can't really talk about the details of that yet. But as far as new original material goes, it will probably be 2025 or 2026 by the time I'm writing again actively for something that's all new and fresh. And I don't know what that's going to sound like. I don't know what it's going to look like. At this point, as you know, the whole business model has changed with streaming. You can just throw a song out there that you like. If if you write one you like, you can record it and put it out there for your fans. It doesn't have to be a whole album. So I'm not sure what the next step is going to be. I'm kind of leaving myself open for whatever comes my way because I don't know in the next year what that's going to look like. You know, some doors could open, some doors could close. I've never been without a plan. I'm usually very forward thinking and, and I'm only taking it a year at a time at this point, which is very unlike me. I love that. That's great. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you decide to start writing for that 2025 project, maybe just try and remember that guy who's on tour with you. I'd love to sit down and do a bit of writing. Oh, I would too. You're an incredible writer. I really enjoyed, you know, your songs. And I learned a lot about you on that tour. There are some songs that I didn't realize that you had written that you did. So we're going to be taking each other up on that when we're not so road weary and our creative juices get flowing. I teased a little bit about this very early on in the tour. My bunk was on the top of the bus and we found out that there were little slots in the side of the bunk between the bunk and the wall that things could fall through. So late at night, I jumped up into the bunk and I'm checking my cell phone and just, you know, kind of turning everything off and putting everything in its place and it slipped out of my hand. It was plugged in and it fell through that crack and I'm sorry about this, Terry. I hit you right in the head with it. And I remember you started laughing your head off. And and then I didn't know what to do because we were just starting the tour. I'm like, this couldn't be more awkward. And then all of a sudden, I just started pulling at the cord and the cell phone started levitating in your bunk and right back up into mine again. But sorry about that. It was that bright light. I thought we were crashing and I was going to heaven. I was like, what's that light going? This thunk comes down and then all of a sudden the phone just slowly starts sliding back up the side of the wall. I was laughing so hard. It sounded like a a slumber party. And then you start giggling. And then a couple weeks later, the iPad did the same thing. Your iPad is massive, by the way. It's the size of a television. Well, yeah. And I hope the rehabilitation is going okay for you on that shoulder. (laughs) At that point, I had started wearing protective gear down there. So, <laughs> oh. What a wonderful conversation with a wonderful person. Terry, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story with us today. From Medicine Hat to Nashville, it really is a tale of passion and resilience and just that never going to quit attitude and the enduring power of country music. So thank you again for joining us on this episode of Cartoons. We really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you, Paul. It's, it's just been a blast getting to talk to you again, and I'll take you up on that co-writing appointment. Cartoons. Do you have an idea or a podcast to share? Send it to us here at Discovery, the radio show for podcasters on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to Cartoons, a podcast series that celebrates Alberta artists and their music you've likely listened to in your car over the years. I'm your host, Paul Brandt, and today we're delving into the musical journey of Leslie Feist, a celebrated figure in the global indie pop scene who you know simply as Feist. 
Her journey from Calgary's punk scene to international acclaim is a story of artistic evolution and a deep connection to her Alberta roots. Feist's musical beginnings include her founding and singing lead vocals with the punk band Placebo in Calgary at 15 years old. Feist shares how her early experiences in Calgary's punk scene influenced her musical style and approach. As a teenager, playing what you're feeling is to be loud and quiet, loud and quiet. And punk bands in the early days are hardcore bands. Basically, you don't have a lot of chops, so you're dealing with dynamics in a volume sense. And I did that for about five or six years, just working on a really loud chorus, then a really quiet verse, and then a really loud chorus. And then as I got older, me and all the people I was playing with, we all you know, started to get a little bit more proficient. Then melodies became more interesting. In 1995, Feist took some time off from singing to recover from damage to her vocal cords and moved to Toronto. She took on playing the bass, rhythm guitar, and lead guitarist for a selection of Toronto's bands before joining a friend on a tour in the UK. Her breakthrough as a solo artist came with her second album, Let It Die, which showcased her eclectic mix of jazz, bossa nova, and indie pop. It could have gone so many ways. At that moment, I had my foot on like five hinges that were all... I was getting invited to go over to Europe and I had been making my demos. I lived with Chris Murphy, my first boyfriend from Sloan, and had a four track and, a, and his computer and I had been making all these early demos. And so taking those demos to sort of my crew over here, Broken Social Scene, or taking those demos overseas and what am I gonna do? What is this? Is this a record? I don't know really what I'm doing. And I'd never worked in a proper recording studio before. I'd never had a producer. I'm like, what's that? Oh, is that the guy that plugs stuff in? And so we recorded that, and it slowly became apparent that it was a record. I'd gotten my bearings in a, in a studio. So it, it kind of happened. Maybe that's one of those commitments that I just sort of backed into. I didn't know that I was making Let It Die, you know, and so somehow I got a record deal. It was just so strange and based in France, and it's still alive now. That's a 20-year deep record deal that I've had based in France this whole time. And it was just the greatest luck ever. Could it be three simple words? All the fear of being overheard, what's wrong? Let a man on the secret She moved to Paris, toured around the world, and won Best New Artist at the Juno Awards in 2004. Thank you very much. I am a soft and sucky person, and I wouldn't be very strong if it weren't for my human shield. Thank you. After close to a lifetime of creating and playing music around the world, in 2007, Feist released the album, The Reminder, which catapulted her to international fame. The album's hit single, One, Two, Three, Four, became a global sensation after being featured in a commercial for the iPod Nano, 
Feist shares how this song's success impacted her career and what it was like to receive such widespread recognition. It was overwhelming, and I suppose had I not already been on the road for so many years or hadn't already made many records with different friends or had that band, that feeling of belonging somewhere, getting signed to a label and looking at it truly like... I am grateful for someone to help me now. You know, that's how I looked at being on a major label. It was, oh my God, someone's going to help me book some shows so I don't have to do it all. Like I had done it myself for so long that I think that all served me to understand that that moment, I knew how to meet it. I knew how to work it, like how to work Clydesdale style, show up to the job and be able to carry this extra stuff that was getting hoisted on my back and carry it. But at the same time, it was, there was momentum to it and... It felt a little wild and out of control and very, like, more than a human body could sustain. It was sort of G-force and not entirely pleasant. And eventually it felt good to say, like, okay, by no metric will anyone say I didn't show up to this moment and do my best and do my darndest, but I just need to take a breather now. Feist experienced countless career highlights because of the success of 1234, including being featured on the cover of New York Times Art Section, selling a million copies of the album worldwide, winning Single of the Year at the Junos, and being featured on Sesame Street singing a variation of the tune to help kids to count. One, two, three, four, monsters walking across the floor. I love counting, counting to the number four. The incredible opportunities continue to pour in for Feist, including being photographed by Annie Leibovitz for Vanity Fair, appearing on Stephen Colbert, and becoming a musical guest on Saturday Night Live. In 2017, Feist released Pleasure, an album that would win the Polaris Music Prize. Thank you. Thank you so much, and I've been really inspired tonight, and I'm going to stop talking now. Bye. This album represented a continuation of her evolution as an artist, delving into deeper and more introspective themes. Like it took forever, felt like forever. It was an arduous time, you know, it took a long time for me to care and want to write and then get ready to make the record and have it arranged and queued up to be able to record and then the whole thing just it's increments of getting ready and then the stories that I was considering or wondering what to write about is this sort of limbo state I mean singing is a proclamation you're you're so sure of something that you're now gonna say it over and over and over and you're gonna encapsulate it in a song you're gonna amplify it you're gonna turn it into like something you know some sort of little thought bubble that belongs in history or something and the state I was in was not that place I didn't know much at that moment you know it was a bit of a I don't know a foggy period for me so to write about that liminal state between abject not knowing and how do you pull apart that knot and then make a song about that in-between state and I don't know maybe sort of press pause on time and just zero in on a moment which is when you're considering what's supposed to be going on and then to focus in on that and write about it you know it's a private sort of reckoning and so I considered my sort of privacy going directly into other people's that same place in them.
Feist shares about the creative process behind this album and how it reflects her growth as an artist. Writing songs is a way that I have often used in times that I've probably experienced as just as challenging, but in retrospect, I can see you weren't. It's a very liquidy infrastructure in there. It, it is malleable and mutable. It changes, but it still holds me up. It's the way I make sense of my Rubik's Cube that is never going to be solved, of how I approach the problems that face me and whether I make them worse or better, basically, I suppose, is maybe the aspiration. It's a puzzle that's been solved this far, and if I can put something in that container of a song that gives me a few clues, I just I can plant them for myself. It's a problem I can continue solving for the next 40 years. Continuing to rack up peak experiences, Feist joined the remaining members of the Tragically Hip at the Juno Awards in 2021 in their first television appearance since the death of lead singer Gord Downey. Feist's journey is a remarkable example of how diverse influences and a strong sense of place can shape an artist's work. From the punk clubs of Calgary to Grammy nominations and international acclaim, her path is a testament to the power of innovation and authenticity in music. Playing the older stuff is great. It's getting into a time machine for me. And I love some of those songs and they continue to tell me new stories. I appreciate which ones have been resilient enough to be able to do that and then which ones have fallen by the wayside. And so the old material's fun, but you know, I'm kind of getting less nostalgic with time, so I'm more interested in now and later. Take it slow, take it easy on me, shed some light, shed some light on my face. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Cartoons, where we've explored the inspirational musical journey of Leslie Feist. Her story is one of artistic courage and a deep connection to her roots, reminding us all of the enduring power of music to reflect who we are and where we come from. Discovery, the radio show for podcasters, exclusive to 1059 The Region. Expand your audience and extend your reach. Send us your podcast, info at 1059theregion.com.